I was trying to find room in the show to talk about the Panasonic Lumix DMC LX100. I saw this on there and I was trying to figure out why you put a camera from 2014 just in our show notes with no explanation. <laughs> so what's up with that? I'm not, we can't. No, this is for, this is like for next week, I think. You don't think you want to talk about it now? I mean, I do want to talk about it, but you've seen the show notes. We don't have time. There's, there's a, no way. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's it's just with the uh, the ongoing thing of discussing point and shoots, which is going to be a big deal this year because of the X100 V2. X100 V the deuce. Yeah, that's probably what they'll call it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the second. <laughs> Not confusing. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone's going to be not going to be able to get it, and then there's going to be more clamoring, and so, and then they won't be able to get the GR cameras because those just keep mm-hmm. being sold out, and they're going to have to figure out what to buy. And so I've been, you know, every time I see you know these old, uh, old point and shoot cameras that are digital, I'm like, you know, maybe maybe this is the answer. Anyway, well, we'll we'll talk about that later. All right, I well, just really wanted to talk about let's it. Let's say this: if you're listening to this show and you're going to listen to next week's show, this is the show. This is all, man, we're in the show. We are in the show. <laughs> oh, jeez. No. If you're listening to this show and you plan to listen to next week's show, you can look up the Panasonic LX100 and figure out why no, Lucas cares about don't, this camera. No, no, no. Because if they do that, then they're going to be like, wow, Lucas is really unprepared for these shows. Like, we're, <laughs> it's, it's actually shocking how unprepared he is. It's, ter- it's terrible. I, I think they know that by now. No, no. Maybe like there's new listeners. <laughs> You don't know, Daniel. <laughs> We're off to a great start here. <laughs> this isn't let's let's get into some some real like actual pre-show topics. Don't okay. hit that button. Don't okay. hit that button. Okay. Stop Fine. it. Fine. Get, just I got thing I got things I gotta say <laughs> that don't belong in the show. <laughs> you better get on it then. I cleared my YouTube watch list. And I think that as like a new year, new me, maybe that's something that other people could be inspired to do as well. How many things did you have on that watch list? It was list? roughly 537 videos. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. I'm I'm a bad I'm bad at YouTube. Yeah, apparently. I like I'll, I'll like go through the recommended for me and I'll go through my subscriptions and I'll be like, "Oh, I want to watch that." And I want to watch that. And I want to watch that. And I'll put it on my watch list. And then I won't watch any of them. Mm, yeah, that seems like an ineffective and then watch list. The next time I open up YouTube, I just do the same thing instead of going to my watch list because yeah. you can't set your watch list as your landing page. I wish it could. That'd be cool. And so they just they just accumulate. And there's been things that are on there for years. Yeah. And as I went through it and manually deleted one by one because there's no other way to do it. Oh, that's terrible. I was like, I actually kind of want to watch some of these, but I didn't. I just deleted them <laughs> and I will never find them again. And I just, it's pretty it's a pretty big step for me. Yeah. They've been lost to the sands of time. Mm-hmm. There's periodic times when I send you a video and you say, I added that to my watch list. I'm like, cool. He'll see that eventually. And now I know that all of that was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) It's all gone. It's all gone. Do you, do you use the watch list on YouTube? No. Okay. So your watch list is zero. Yeah. Well, no, it's probably not zero because I'm sure there was some, some point where I thought, oh, I want to watch this later. I'll add it to this watch list, but I just don't even look at mine. I couldn't tell you how to get to it. I don't know how many videos are on it. I will probably never watch them. Well, this, this is now a PSA. You know, if you're not really using your watch list, maybe it's time. Yeah. Or maybe it's time to clear it and start over. That's it. You can hit the button now. (laughs) Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. 
I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. I have another update for you on my saga that has been ongoing for six episodes. Welcome back to the Film Camera Gear Podcast. It's just, this is, I'm going to have to name this segment. It's just, it's not stopping. I got my photos back from my Minolta Hymatic AF2, mm-hmm. in which I said, oh, I'm getting these developed by an actual development place, shop, studio, develop, lab. There we go. Lab. Golly, that's, that was- That's the word. That was tough. That was real tough. <laughs> A lab, I got them back. And what I learned was, I don't know how to use that camera. Mm. <laughs> What happened? All the shots were perfectly exposed. So I was really happy to see. Do you really think they were perfectly exposed? I don't know. I don't know if I I agree. I feel like that's up to artistic interpretation. (laughs) And the camera, formerly known as an artist, because it retired, because it's from 1982, uh, named Minolta, believes that these are perfectly exposed. I mean, you you could see everything. It was <laughs> Except for the things that were super blown out because of the flash. That flash is nuts, Daniel. <laughs> uh, holy cow. Yeah. I'm never using that flash again. Yeah. There are some pictures that you took with the flash where it's just this like blinding white light. It is. Covering the whole scene. Shocking. I took I took a picture where it was daylight through a window, like really strong lighting. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't have normally used a flash, but I, wanted, I was like, oh, I'll put the flash on, use it as some fill. Completely blew out yeah. the sunlight. Like the flash is brighter than the sun. Well, and it's probably just a single power. Like that's yeah. that's really probably mm-hmm. what it is. It's that it can't adjust its power, so it can't just do like a little bit of fill flash. Are capacitors like lions, where they become more fierce towards the end of their life? <laughs> yes, I'm just I'm just gonna go with yes. That yeah. sounds sounds exactly right. So my aging lion camera, I'm just gonna retire that flash. <laughs> it is it is aggressive. Yes. And, but the the ones that were a little too dark that were beeping at me to use the flash, I was okay with how underexposed those were. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep doing that. Yeah. And then... But you had some problems with the focus too. Yeah. Right? So I was happy with the light meter works, but the focus, oh boy, I clearly don't know how to use this. One of the reasons I got the AF2 instead of the AF1 was because you're supposed to be able to half press the shutter to focus and then recompose and then take the picture. Mm, yeah. I do that with my digital cameras a lot. Yeah. Well, most of the advice from this, the manual that I read through was like, push the shutter down slower. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) One smooth motion if you're taking a picture with the thing directly on. But I think it's kind of a matter of like, I need to push the shutter down slowly and then make sure that it gives me some sort of feedback that, or it's not giving me feedback that it's out of focus and then feel confident that I have the focus dial thing like perfectly over my subject and then I'll take the picture and I'm just going to try to be a little more careful about the focus because there were almost all of my pictures that were of somebody who was looking at me dead center and like they're the subject and they've posed the backgrounds in focus and they're not in focus. So do you think that you're taking the pictures too quickly? Maybe. Or do you think you're not like you like there's a single focus point on this camera and you don't have it on the person. This is early autofocus stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's so it's a, probably slow for one thing. It's probably slow and it it uses uh it uses uh, infrared I think. Is that what I said? Yeah, I think it's what you said. Yeah, it, says, it uses like infrared for the anyways. I think it's slow. It can be subject to interference and I think I just need to know like know how to use it. Yeah. 
uh, to use it with confidence. And how, so, whenever you're taking a picture with that camera, does it tell you when it thinks it is in focus? Like, how do you know? It tells you when it thinks it's not in focus, okay. but you don't know what it's focusing on. Sure. And so, there's yeah, no means sense. of feedback. I see. The other thing I learned is how to use rangefinder frame guides. Mm, yeah, because I noticed that in your pictures. It seemed like a lot a lot of your framing was like too, you, you framed the pictures too high to where you had like way too much headroom mm-hmm. on, on people and stuff. I didn't know that there's different frame guides based upon how close your subject is. Like mm. closer than six feet, you're supposed to use different frame guides in the viewfinder. It's just all a learning experience for me, Daniel. I've never really used a rangefinder significantly. Yeah. Or an ancient autofocus point and shoot camera that takes terrible pictures. That is, yeah, that is interesting. So yeah, I'm going to keep using it. And uh, I, having inspected my camera further, I need to replace the light seals. But it has like a, ra- a leather wrap around it. So mm. I don't think it's critical immediately, but I need to do that. And that's just something that you notice by looking at the camera. Like yeah. you could just see that it was deteriorating. Yeah, opening up the film door yeah. looks like those things need to be replaced. Yeah. So, but your, your pictures didn't have any problems because of that leather There wrap was around. one picture that had some light bleed on it. Mm. And I don't know why just that one. It was one that I took outside, but it wasn't the only one I took outside. I wonder if the sun was at a particular angle or, or something. Yeah, or maybe I had taken the leather strap off, the leather mm-hmm. bra- packaging off of the back of it for a period of time. I can't remember, but I'm going to I'm gonna be careful about that. So Sure. Yep. Overall, though, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I'm, I'm still super pumped about it, and I'm excited to use the next roll of film. Yeah. And then this one, I'm going to develop myself. So there's mm-hmm. still a lot more, a little more to come on, uh, in regards yeah. to my, my journey here. I mean, overall, it seems like it was a, it's been a win so far where, I mean, you need to figure out that focus thing and maybe that'll end up being a big problem, but assuming you can figure that out and assuming it's just some issue with how you're using the camera. I mean, it seemed like the pictures looked pretty good. I felt like they all looked like pictures from a party in the 70s which is probably mm-hmm. exactly what taken with like a for. disposable camera yeah yeah it looks like a bad disposable camera bad but daniel you're kind of into bad, that so bad i mean i would say like a top end disposable camera <laughs> if you say so okay there's that's my update now let's like let's get into what we're really going to talk about here okay i have a legendary lens for you it's been a while it has been a minute are you excited I am. What okay. do you got for us today? This is, I won't tell you why it came up, but anyways, this is the Canon 50 millimeter F 1.0 L USM. Now, isn't this a, is this a new lens? Cause it, I, I remember why, why does 1.0 stick in my mind? Is that, is there, there's a Fuji lens that's 1.0. There is a Fuji lens that's okay. 1.0. But that's APS-C and this is full This frame? is a full frame EF lens. Okay. It was originally released in 1989 and they made it for 10 years. Okay. They, they, used, they produced it until the year 2000. So this is not a new lens. This is not a new lens. Okay. But there was a decent amount of them made. You know, they produced it for 10 years. It didn't sell super duper well and it was fairly expensive when it came out. It was in like that $2,000 range mm, kind of thing. Okay. You can buy these things used you know, in the four to four thousand to forty five hundred dollar range right now. But whenever this lens came out, it was the fastest SLR lens you could buy at the time. Oh. Like period. Wow. Uh like obviously there's faster lenses. Like there's the um that Carl's Ice lens we talked about forever. Sure. There was the knock, the fifty eight mm-hmm. millimeter not point no, that was one point two back in the day. But like there were point nine five, point seven ones, like weird one off fast lenses. But this but what's was what's the distinction on this one? Why are you saying this is the fastest? When it was in production and for sale, 
it was the fastest lens on the market. Oh, okay. And then additionally, at that time, it was the fastest autofocusing 1.0 lens slash the only autofocusing lens that fast that had ever been made. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting then. Yeah. So it's kind of like a big deal because mm-hmm. you're at 1.0 and you're getting the slowest, worst autofocus you can imagine. <laughs> it's not really that bad. It's actually gotten a lot better on modern cameras because the algorithms have gotten a lot better. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. And then like, you know how macro lenses have that little switch on them? Yeah. They, they put yeah. that on there because they knew it was going to be really slow to focus. Mm-hmm. And because it's like huge with the front element and everything, which really it's like a 72 millimeter filter that's thread. That's not that big. My, um, the, uh, that's like the size of the Viltrox 75 1.2 for APS-C. So... Right, yeah. It's not that big, really. It's not that big, but there's a lot of big elements in there, like two A's for commons, and it's it's a very lot of heavy glass. Uh, In order to focus it, they they did a different focusing method where the the front floating element is what moves to focus rather than the back element. Interesting. Like if you look at lens construction, there's a lot of different ways you can focus, and most modern lenses out of speed and ease use the back elements that are near the glass that move in and out to focus mm. because mm-hmm. it can uh, it's just faster to move those small little pieces yeah. rather than trying to move the floating elements. That makes sense. You need a smaller motor and all that. Right. But this one, the, that rear element is is locked in. And I so see. it's you can get kind of like a sharper focus at the expense of the, the speed of it. Uh, even though this lens is like not it's not sharp. <laughs> it's just it's just not interesting. It's, like I mean 1.0 at full frame. Like your depth of field is nothing. Yeah. It's just absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Some reviewers say that this lens at wide open doesn't have a plane of focus. <laughs> <laughs> just nothing's in focus, kind of like that Minolta camera. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But it's still, this is kind of a, a sought after lens. Going from like a modern 1.4 lens to this one, which this has, because like the amount of glass in it, your effective aperture is actually better than just, you know, it's it's good for a 1.0. Like, you know how you have some 1.4 lenses that are like a T1.6 and some that are like a T1.5 or something like that? Yeah, because the 1.4, an f-stop is basically a mathematical equation rather than like right. a practical, this is like experimentally how much light is getting through. Right. Your f-stop is a, is a function of your of like your effective aperture divided by your focal length. Yeah. So like you can kind of calculate the effective aperture and then, then you can compare focal mm-hmm. length and we can f- compare lenses of different focal lengths to see like which one has a bigger aperture. And then T-stop is basically F-stop, but accounting for light transmission down yeah. back to the back to the yeah. sensor itself. So in counting for the light transmission, this is somewhere around like uh, a stop faster, like a whole stop faster than a 1.4 lens. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And That's a meaningful like, difference. Yeah, it is. And then it's like two thirds faster than like a 1.2. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fast. Yeah. Zip yeah. to zip. And especially, I mean, now a lot of modern cameras are really good at low light, like especially digital stuff. You know, you, the, the modern sensors are just a lot better at dealing with noise. And then you've got things like, you know, AI denoising algorithms and stuff. And so we can deal with low light a lot easier now. But if you're using an older camera or, you know, back in the day when cameras just weren't as good in the dark, I could see that being really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this lens is just kind of a, kind of a big deal because it was... It's so fast and it's got autofocus and which is what it was at the time. Even now, the lenses that have replaced this are F1.2 lenses. Yeah. The sacrifice of the light in trade for faster autofocusing and sharper images 
is what camera key makers have have landed on. Yeah. And so this this was replaced with a 50 millimeter f 1.2, mm-hmm. and I don't think Canon's ever going to come back with another 1.0. Yeah. I mean, they probably just don't need to. Like, it's easier and better to just improve the cameras that the sensors low light performance right. than it would be to make another f 1.0 lens. Yeah. Well, it's like sure you could get another stop, but there's a lot of trade offs. You just it's just yeah. always not very sharp. Yeah, it's not sharp. It's going to be really heavy, big. Like, yeah, downsides. Right. Yeah, and like, I was looking at because uh, like the conversation kind of as this goes down. But like, if you have a one point oh fifty millimeter lens, that is going to have like a bigger effective aperture, or it's going to have a roughly similar effective aperture of like an eighty five one point four or something like that. Mm, Maybe, interesting. Yeah, because the one point two and eighty five one point eight is basically the same fifty one point two and eighty five one point eight. I see. Uh, which is why Fuji's fifty six is a 1.2 because yeah. it's almost effectively an 85 full frame whenever you do the translation but you know it's you're getting like a like an 85 style uh you know the size of the bokeh and the out of focus and all this sort of thing but add a shorter focal length and so it kind of gives some interesting looks that you can't really get with a 1.2 but it's yeah. like it's close yeah hmm. okay i think the other interesting thing is that this lens went out of production 2000 and then now today there is one autofocus lens on the market that's faster than f1.2. And what's that? I mean, you already said it. So, like, this was, like, <laughs> my big moment, but you already ruined it. It's it's the Fujifilm 50mm 1.0. Yeah. And I think that kind of, we were like, oh, cool, 1.0 APS-C lens. That is the only 1.0 lens that's autofocus on the market. There actually aren't any other 1.0 lenses. They're all like 0.95 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But even the knocked at 0.95 is is manual focus. Yeah. It also weighs twice as yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, the Fuji lens is APS-C and, and the one you're talking about today as well as like the knocked and stuff are full frame. So, right, yeah. yeah. That's not an apples to apples comparison. It is not, but just the challenge of getting down to 1.0 is still a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's something that a lot of manufacturers just don't really see a need for it seems and so i think that it's kind of interesting to to highlight these autofocus lenses that are the fastest of the fast yeah and like right now fujifilm kind of holds the crown but it was a predicated preceded preceded by this canon 50 millimeter 1.0 lusm and so that is my legendary lens yeah pretty cool canon's always been uh doing new things and you know, releasing lenses that other people aren't releasing. We're seeing that now with some of the stuff they're coming out with. Mm-hmm. And it seems like yeah. they've uh, always been doing that. Yeah. So pretty cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. I have another thing on here, which was like a side topic, which I feel like I should talk about somewhere else down the line because it has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. <laughs> but since I'm already talking about it, I was looking at film cameras. Stop oh, it. Yeah. Stop, Daniel. Sh- shocker. Stop it. Just let me be me, okay? <laughs> And I realized, I don't know why it didn't occur to me, I can buy a film camera that has EF mount, like EF lens mount on it. And I have EF lenses. Yeah. Like, why am I not doing that? Why haven't you done that already? I don't know. And so I was looking at, like, what what's some good EF mount film cameras? And I came across the Canon A2E, which I learned is the first Canon camera to have eye autofocus. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea that a camera that came out and, oh, I don't have the date. It's like the late 80s, the late, like, 89, like 89 or something was the first time Canon had eye detect. Wow. Like, I wonder how that works. As in, it's looking at your eyeball in the viewfinder and there's like five autofocus points 
and it sees which autofocus point you're looking at. Oh. And then what? it uses that autofocus point to pull focus. Kind of like you know, like half pressing the shutter when like using single point half press. It does that, but it has five points and you just look at the one you want and then it does the thing. Oh, that's weird. Like the Canon R3 does this where you can like look where you want it to focus and yeah. like it watches your eyeball and does wow. the whole thing. They were doing this since 1989. <laughs> that's pretty cool. What? <laughs> I just, I was like, hold up. You mean this isn't new? Nothing's new, Daniel. Nothing's Everything's new. Everything's been done before. Canon just pulled that all out of out of the warehouse and put that on the R3. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is like a rudimentary version, but it's pretty oh, cool. Oh, boy. I was like, I think I think this is so the is camera that, I need. Yeah. Is that the one? Is that what you're going to get? I don't, I don't know, Daniel. I don't know. <laughs> I think that based upon where I am with my film journey, uh, I still have like a $70 budget on buying film cameras. <laughs> <laughs> still starting small here. I, yeah, I guess yeah. this one must be more expensive than 70 bucks. I mean, I think it's probably closer to 150 or 200. Oh man, that's going to break the budget. I know. So yeah. like, I, I'm maybe, maybe I'm not there yet, but uh, I think that this could be pretty yeah. cool. The day is coming and soon we'll be here in which you will have that camera. Yeah. I mean, you were telling me that you thought I might buy like two or three film cameras this year. Yeah, and you're least. thinking you might buy two or three film cameras this month. Well, I need the A2E now because it's super baller. Mm. But then also, I got to get the the Fujifilm Natura Black. That camera is so small, Daniel. I was trying to find size comparisons and somebody in one of the reviews said, it's small enough that you could put three of them in your back pocket. I don't know if that's a very precise measurements i mean but i don't know when they did the review like they could have been wearing jinkos yeah that's that's what i'm thinking and in that case you could put three of any camera <laughs> in your back pocket you could put three reds back there oh geez anyways uh so you know the natura is is on my want list but that's that one's gonna be like six hundred dollars and i feel like i just i might as well buy a digital camera at that point i don't know maybe this time next year you don't even shoot digital anymore sounds crazy <laughs> The film, the film pictures are not good. Yeah, but you're really into it. You really <laughs> like that. Maybe those, maybe like if I, when I use those EF lenses, because those are really good lenses. Maybe that's it. That's true. That might help. Yeah. Anyway, this wasn't even what we're talking about here. <laughs> what I want to talk about is real, like forward thinking technology. Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about the Vision Pro. Yeah, we've talked about the Vision Pro already, right? But we're not going to talk about like the Vision Pro because this isn't a tech podcast. I want to talk about like what it's as far as like it is a content consumption device. Like, I mean, I'll, I'm gonna I'll pitch it to you first, I guess. Like, what is the Vision Pro primarily for? Like, with all the marketing material and this sort, this like how it's being positioned by Apple. Yeah. What do you think they're hoping that this thing is for? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that they maybe don't really know yet. So when I think about it, I compare it to the Apple Watch, where they came out with it and it had you know, a number of different features. They talked about the fitness tracking stuff, um, you know, seeing notifications on your phone, but they also had all these messaging features where like uh, there are all these different ways you could send messages and emojis and stuff to friends. And they, they even had a thing for a while where you could like share your heartbeat with somebody else. You remember that? Yeah, I do. And so they had all these different things, but after it had been out for a few years, they started to figure out the, the features that people really wanted and the reasons people were really buying an Apple Watch and, you know, fitness was one of the big categories. There were a couple other things too, but I think fitness is probably the biggest one and like health related things. And so in more recent years, they've really started focusing that product down to, you know, primarily solve those use cases. And I think it's better as a result. I kind of think it's similar to Vision Pro 
where content consumption is one thing you could do with it. They've also shown a lot of like people doing productivity things, you know, like using your computer in this virtual world. They've shown it as a content creation device too. So it has cameras in it and you can use it to film spatial video and stuff like that. And so I think that maybe they don't really know yet what people are going to do with it. One of the things is like everything that I've seen about it, the content consumption piece and it just being a screen seems like a lot of what they're leaning into as far as it's a like productivity or like watching a movie or that sort of thing. 3D TVs just Mm -hmm. went away. And it seems to me like this is kind of my conclusion. I'm just going to start with it. A lot of the 3D technology that we've seen through the years with like 3D cameras and stuff from like you think about like 2010 whenever like 3D movies were the were the bee's knees and it was like everyone has to buy a 3D TV for their home you're going to wear these glasses and blah 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 it never never takes off it's just it seems like it's tried to catch and it's tried to catch and it just never got there yeah and it feels like like consumer AR VR not AR I guess VR headsets or AR VR headsets that have that can now like do real good 3D because it has control like what each eye is seeing and you're not having to I mean you're having to wear a headset on your head so you are having to wear some sort of glasses but it's like maybe this is finally the avenue for all this 3D content that exists because mm-hmm. it feels like people keep making 3D content and there's no way to view it yeah it does kind of seem that way and I don't know why it hasn't taken off I mean Maybe it's the cost aspect because a lot of those 3D TVs, you know, you needed to wear those special glasses. And so it was like, you know, you've got to buy all these glasses that you have enough. You know, if you have friends over to watch a movie, everybody's got to have the glasses and that's maybe a problem. So maybe it was that. And, you know, the Vision Pro is going to be $3,500. So that's not super approachable for regular people to buy. Maybe it's that the processing technology just hasn't been good enough yet. You know, there's like the uncanny valley yeah. with with um, animated stuff or, you know, like things that are created and not, you know, filmed where, you know, it's like if it's not, if it's trying to be real, but it's not real enough, then, you know, you're just not really into it. And it kind of, it's kind of unsettling. Maybe that's been the problem where, you know, until recently, maybe you just couldn't make it look real enough to give you the benefit or I don't know. Maybe there hasn't been enough content for it. I, maybe it's that too. There's a lot of possible reasons, I think. So many modern movies are released in 3D and they don't, I don't know if you can buy a 3D TV right now. Yeah. Like, I don't think you can. Yeah. And how, like, how am I supposed to watch like, I don't know, the Avatar 2 in 3D mm-hmm. if I missed it in theaters? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's just no way. That's which is kind of strange. It's like maybe like maybe with the MetaQuest is like the only real way to do that right now mm-hmm. until the Vision Pro comes out. It's kind of weird. It's like, is it a cart before the horse situation? Like the content consumption device will have to follow all of the, like the production mm-hmm. or is it a vice versa thing? Yeah. And I, mean, I think the most, one of the most interesting things here is, you know, with 17.2, you can now record spatial video with an iPhone. Yeah. If you have an iPhone 15, mm-hmm. I think Apple putting 3D video cameras in everybody's hand maybe helps solve that problem. Well, and I think maybe that's, maybe that's one of the missing pieces. Cause for me, So part of the reason I've never cared about 3D movies and 3D TVs is because for some reason, a lot of that 3D technology, just the way my eyes are, I can't actually see it Mm -hmm. as a 3D thing. Like I just don't get the full effect of it and it doesn't mean mean much to me, but I've never, and so maybe you can give me a better perspective on this, but I've never seen something in 3D 
that blew me away and like really made me meaningfully feel like I was getting a different experience than what I would get by just watching it normally. So I guess just to pause for a second, like, is that your experience or do you feel like you've actually enjoyed it? I've seen some cool, interesting 3D stuff, but generally speaking, I don't typically want to take the the cost of whatever it's going to be. If I'm going to mm. go, if I'm going to go sit in a movie theater for like three hours, I I don't want to wear glasses. Like yeah. I don't I don't wear glasses, and so I'm like I don't want to put these things on. And mm. it's like it never the effect isn't always a hundred percent, and sometimes you can just see past it. And so I I kind of find the the dual thing with where it's like trying to combine in the glasses annoying. Yeah, and like it almost gives me a headache, but not really. And I just haven't been super into that. I have tried briefly uh, a friend's quest where it was some you know 3D game or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool because that's more it's more similar to like real life. Interesting. And so I think that maybe something like a VR headset is the most impactful way to view 3D content mm-hmm. in a way that you don't really get from like a movie theater. Yeah, because I mean, I guess at, at minimum, like there's this huge difference in that with a VR headset, you're in the scene and you can look around in the scene, right? And you can see different things and like maybe the 3D gives you some information where you're like, oh, there's something behind this that I can like right. kind of look around. Whereas on a movie, I mean, you're still you're still just watching whatever they want you to see. Like it's taking camera. you for a ride. It is It is using the three dimensions to further direct your attention yeah. and tell a story rather than you participate, you being, you're participating rather than being the active yeah. one. That feels like a big difference to me. Because, it is. It because is I think difference. like, you know, when I watch a movie, I'm having to suspend a lot of disbelief already. I mean, like, you know, the, Obviously, the script might require that, you know, if it's a sci-fi movie or something, you know, then clearly I'm already having to suspend disbelief. But I'm also sitting there just as an observer watching this thing. And so maybe that's why I don't really feel like it adds much. But I guess it's just like I enjoy watching movies in 2D and that's fine. And I get a lot out of it. But I mean, I can definitely see value in, you know, having it for something like AR or VR where I'm like in a world and moving around a world and maybe it makes it feel more real. I don't know. It seems like an uphill battle to me in like if you're watching something, I think in VR that's like to avoid like motion sickness and all this sort of thing, you like you have to go high frame rate and there's always the push of, you know, like does this look filmic and mm-hmm. high frame rate versus not and it has to change the way that things are captured. And I think it's going to be an interesting hill to get over. Yeah. And I don't know I I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just it's something that I'm curious to see and I feel like all history around this is that it just has never worked. Yeah. I do think that, you know, you mentioned the iPhone supporting it. I think that's potent, like that's probably the best chance it has of succeeding. Right. Because for one thing, it puts that capability into the hands of a lot more people because so many people have the iPhone 15, uh, you know, or, or newer phones. But I also think that maybe we'll care more about it when it's stuff that we've captured. You know, if I'm watching maybe. a 3D movie of like, an event that I was at or something I experienced. Or short, maybe, short video clips that you've you've shot. Yeah, yeah. Because maybe then when I'm looking back at it, like I have the memory of having been there and maybe seeing it in 3D, like maybe that helps me cross that uncanny valley a little bit to where like even if the effect isn't perfect, like I've got a little bit of my memory and I'm seeing it in 3D and maybe that makes it feel more real to me. 
Do you did you have you downloaded seventeen point two? I have. Yep. And have you have you taken any spatial video? I haven't done it. I I opened up the camera app and saw what you know saw saw how the function worked, uh, but I haven't actually filmed anything in it. Can you take spatial photos? No, it's just the video. Interesting. Yeah, and it makes you put the phone in landscape mode. It also puts a uh, a horizon on, and so it's you know like a level, and so it, it that's cool. Kind of shows you if you're not level, which makes me think that. It's going to be a problem, you know, if you're not filming at level. Yeah, like, I could see that being an issue. Like you're not going to be able to film vertical spatial video and have that make any sense. So, um, I think that the effect is going to be limited with the iPhone. One of the big things with 3D video is the ocular distance, and that's the distance between the two lenses. And for ideally, you know, you want it to be the same distance as your eyes or sure. like a standard person's eyes, I guess. Yeah. And, and that will be good for like a certain distance. But if you want to create a 3D effect with something that's really far away, like 10, 30, 40 feet, that ocular distance has to actually get greater than your eyes in order to then create a level of three dimension. Hmm. And so I think that the like the current iPhone setup, one, those, those lenses aren't even the same focal length. So it's doing some weird software stuff. And then the ocular distance is like a centimeter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the cameras on the iPhone right now are kind of clustered into one corner. You could imagine that maybe in some future iPhone, they'd have like one lens on the top and one on the bottom mm-hmm. of the phone or something like that to get them a little bit farther apart. Um, I mean, it clearly seems like, I, I think it was a great move for them to put that in this iPhone before the Agreed. before the Vision Pro already comes out. Because there are going to be people on day one that buy the Vision Pro and have known that they were going to get one. And so they've already filmed clips. And I think that's really cool. I think I've should probably start filming some in it because if I ever get something like that, like it'd be cool if I have some stuff, you know, from the past in it. Um, so I think that was a really good move, but I do think that we'll see future phones or future capture devices that are more optimized for that. I do want to talk a little bit about stuff that has existed before as far as capture devices. And yeah. maybe you don't have an iPhone 15, but you want to start capturing stereo photos or video so that whenever you get your your Vision Pro, you're ready to ready to rock and roll. Yeah. And so I kind of did a, a deeper dive into, you know, all the different attempts at like stereo video or stereo photo. And uh, it really brought to question why hasn't 3D taken off if it's been around for as long as it has. <laughs> uh, and I was going to, I was going to like hide this from you and quiz you to when you thought like the first like stereo mm. photo, stereo photog- stereoscopic photography thing. That's a good question. And I, I've seen your show notes, but I think if, you know, having not read through that, the first thing that would have come to mind for me would have been that Viewmaster thing. I don't know if you ever saw one of those, but is that the, like it had like a dial. And yeah. You, you yeah. Could like rotate whenever you're a different... kid or whatever, you like you put the things in, mm-hmm. you can like see two things. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was kind of what I thought of. It's 1839. <laughs> That's it's a lot older than I would have Some expected. Some of the stuff that I was reading was like before modern photography became a thing, this was a thing. Yeah. It like happened at the same time. That's really interesting. And they had these like stereoscopes for you to like view the 3D pictures, but it's basically mm-hmm. the concept of like taking two images at the same time from slightly different angles and then like viewing them at the same time so that you can then get a three-dimensional effect. It's really weird that that's as old as it is because it, it makes it, it makes it feel like it was more important back then than it is now. Yeah, the, the, some, some of the stuff that I found is nuts. But the the Veriscope F40, which came out in was originally designed in 1838 and came out in 1839, <laughs> is uh, the original the original stereoscopic photography tool. <laughs> it's, it's like before the Civil War happened, there was stereoscopic photography. Yeah, dude, it's crazy, it's nuts. But I'm like. If that's the case, where are all the stereoscopic yeah. pictures? 
Good question. So, you know, where are they? But then like also, how do you look at them? Yeah, like what what is the viewer for something like that? You have Apple Vision Pro? Exactly. Yeah, but that, <laughs> like that's the thing is, you know, since 1839, there has been different types of stereo cameras mm-hmm. that are where either there's film ones, there's digital, there's posted cards, whatever, by hand drawn. I don't know. <laughs> but like there's like, 3D stereoscopic photos have been out forever. And it's like, how do you look at them? And back in the day, there's a lot of different things of like, you can get a slide projector that does like two slides and then kind of shows them both. Or, and then you like wear glasses and you can like color tint them and do like old school and 1980s 3D. You can wear like a little viewer where you look through two different lenses or looking at the two pictures, sure. kind of like a VR headset, but just with static pictures and you slide in your two slides and you can see them. Have you never done the thing where there's like a dot and two images and you like cross your eyes? Yeah. And like look past it? Uh-huh. You could do that. Yeah. Modern, there's a, uh, I found a, um, you can make like 3D wiggle images. <laughs> I looked at some of those links and that, those things kind of freak me out a little Isn't bit. Isn't that crazy? It's, where it's, it's, it's basically a gift that like cycles between back and forth your, yeah. your three images or two images. Yeah, and this person's just like wobbling. Yeah, and like makes it like a wiggle thing, but it gives like a 3D effect. Yeah, those are kind of weird. Uh, have you seen those? Um, I think I actually have the word for this somewhere down the line whenever we talk about the uh, the Nimslow 3D that came out in the 1980s. But have you seen like a, lentic- a lenticular print? No, where, what does that mean? Well, it's it's like those those 3D cards. Like you're like, here's a 3D trading card and you like kind of tilt it oh. and it like has two images in there, but okay, it kind of has uh-huh. like a holographic effect. Sure. So like there's stuff like that, but it feels like if stereotopic photography has been around since 1838 and it's 2024... Like, I, I have no way in my life to view 3D images. First off, kudos on actually saying 2024. Thank you. Because I have not yet hit the point where that's <laughs> natural for me. But yeah, that, that's really strange. Like, you know, because every, every solution I can think of, I mean, you, you described a few like low tech ways, but everything I can think of now is like, you know, using some sort of computer something to display mm-hmm. it. But we don't really have things like that. Like, you know, I have an iPad and a phone sitting in front of me. I can't view 3D images on either of those. And it's, it is kind of strange that... We've kept up the capture part, but then like in the digital realm, at least the viewing part feels like it's so far behind that. I want to talk about a lot of different kind of like how you capture 3D images and video. And I want to talk about some cameras that I've came across. Okay. But on this, like first on this, this subject of like every single one of these cameras kind of has come out with its own. And also this is how you view it. <laughs> And like they're trying to sell they you, to. they're trying to sell you the consumption method and the capture method at the same time. Yeah, and it's like, well, is this only for me? Like, do I have friends that are going to mm. like? How is it? Well, and I think the Apple uh, Vision Pro is going to have that same problem because it, it, you know, it's going to have cameras in it, and and they pitched it as this is a way you can capture those videos. Obviously, you're not going to be able to view it without having a Vision Pro, right? And so it kind of has that problem. But I guess it's sort of a chicken and egg problem where it's like. You've got to get an install base of these things for it to make sense to create that content. But I don't know. Yeah, There are, there's like video formats for 3D video. But whenever you go down the road of 3D photos, I was trying to, I was like, okay, if I took a 3D photo, say I, I buy one of these 3D film cameras that I'm going to talk about that I'm super pumped about. <laughs> and I like scanned in my 3D photos or my two JPEGs of, of, the, of the film. How do I make it a 3D image? Like what, what even is that? And so I was looking up like the different, like, you know, 
what are you going to do? Are you like, is it just two JPEGs side by side? Is it, is it a specific file format and mm-hmm. that sort of thing? I found a thread from like 2010 where someone was talking about their 3D TV and they wanted to upload a 3D image. They're like, it doesn't seem to take MPO format. Like, what do I do? And the solution was put two JPEGs on top of each other at this appropriate resolution and then the TV will figure it out. <laughs> when you say on top of each other, what do you mean? I mean like, here's a picture and then directly below it is a picture. So if you had- So two, this is like a really tall picture. Yeah, so if you had a, like a 1920 by 1080 thing, then it would be like a 3840 by 1920. I see. I did that backwards. 3840 by 1080, so like side yeah. by side or um, vertical. I see, interesting. By, anyways. So there's just like a convention basically where you- you yeah, can and that build was, a JPEG this way and then it can interpret that. Right. And that was for TVs back then. Now, currently, there is an MPO format, which is multiple picture object format, where you take some overlapping JPEGs and makes them for 3D. You can't make an MPO with Photoshop. You can do 3D stuff in Photoshop. You can't make MPOs. That's interesting. Uh, you have so to it use must a, not be that big of a standard. But then. like there isn't another standard. <laughs> Most things are just like, just put two pictures side by side, yeah. which hmm. is I don't, I guess kind of dumb, but yeah, also it gives you the option of like posting it in 2D and then you can also mm-hmm. pull it into 3D maybe. Like I kind of started going down this hole and I'm like looking for software that can do these things of like there's the wiggle stuff that we talked about and there's MPO and some of these softwares were like 2005 <laughs> HTML pages. They're like <laughs> download this link. And I was like, oh, that's where we are yeah. with viewing 3D images and 3D file formats in like current modern technology is an HTML web page with links. That's pretty crazy. That is like, I guess this is an open source software that started in 2010 and hasn't been developed since because 3D TVs never took off. I mean, like you said, I think it's farther along for video because I think that- Which is so like, funny. Like I think I think Apple already has a format for spatial video. They right, must they do. Because you can film on the iPhone with it. And so, yeah, I'm sure other companies do too. But yeah, I guess for photos, it's just not- something that people have really focused on. I know that like spatial audio is a big deal right now. And I'm curious, I haven't actually dug deep on what spatial video that format is and mm-hmm. like how those containers work and like, is it dot .mov still or with like different encoding in it or how that, how that actually works and does it have spatial audio tied into the spatial video itself? And is it different than like, if I downloaded a 3d movie, like is that a different format or a different yeah. codec? We're going to have like a whole codec thing on with 3D, mm, just like we did with like MOV and MP4 and MKV and all yep. that stuff. It's going to be terrible. And like, it just, it seems like we've been doing this for over a hundred years <laughs> and we're, it's just not there. If I was like, I have, I have a 3D film camera. I still have no idea how I'm going to, like, I don't even know how I would get it into my vision pro. Yep. No, it's just the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's all too early days, which is crazy to say. It but. is. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so I, I just, it makes me so dubious mm-hmm. on the success of like 3D video, 3D photo for the Vision Pro because it just has failed over and over and I, over. I feel like, I think you're right. And I feel like the device has to succeed on its own merits and just happen to support 3D for this to ever work. Because I think if you could fast forward to a future where everyone has one of these, like whether it's an Apple Vision Pro or some future you know, Google Vision Pro or whatever, if everyone you knew had one of these, then I think that 3D video content and 3D photos would be an easier sell. Sure. Because you could create this thing and like everyone could see it. And I think then it would work. But I think people aren't going to buy into it just for that. Like we've already proven they're not willing to buy 3D TVs for that. And so 
it seems like it's got to succeed on other merits, like whether it be like the productivity stuff or the other benefits of having, you know, really good video goggles or whatever. But if it's like if they can sneak these into people's houses, I think it'll take off. Yeah, maybe it's I'm, I'm just I'm curious to see maybe finally we'll have we'll have this 3D viewing device that's like people all of a sudden accidentally have. And now like, oh man, I was into stereoscopic photography back in 1993 and I have all these stereo pictures that I can finally view like 30 years later. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about, like this is a camera podcast. So I want to talk about the cameras and I want to talk about capturing 3D. Okay. That sounds good. All right. So we already talked about interocular distance mm-hmm. and how that's like a big deal as far yep. as 3D images. And even if you have like some of these cameras I talk about, like the, for instance, the Stereo Realist, which is a 35 millimeter twin lens film camera, the ocular distance of those is about the distance between your eyes. Like if you imagine a film camera that just has two lenses on it, mm-hmm. it's basically what this is. Sure. This, this specific camera was produced uh, from 1947 to 1971. Wow. And is that a 35 millimeter? Yeah, it's 35 millimeters. And uh, it was, quote unquote, the most popular 35 millimeter photo camera ever made. Stereo photo camera. How does this work with uh, film? So you you just, it seemed like a roll, you run a roll of film through the back of it. And then different ones had different ways of doing it. But they indicated like left, right, or had some like orientation for the image on the film itself. So like, Imagine like a film strip and a picture in it outside of the picture area. There may be like a dot or a marking so that you know which image goes with which image. And then the the film itself, they're out of order because it's taking two pictures at the same time with two lenses that are separated by a distance. Right. So it's like these two go together, slide over, and then the one between those two and then the one before the first one, maybe like those go together. I see, because the lenses are farther apart than two uh, frames on the film. Exactly. Right. So it's kind of like if... The, you have two lenses, maybe it's like picture, space, picture. I see. And then it kind of slides through and like you have to kind of skip over the over the extra one so you don't get a double exposure and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's just interesting because it's like a lot of engineering went into making this work. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just stopped. They didn't mm-hmm. do the rest. <laughs> I don't know. It's, people were super in it for like 30 years. I, I don't guess. know. Like yeah. you use the slide things or whatever. So like... Interocular distance, a lot of these lenses are like f3.5 lenses or like f11 kind of thing. And, you know, they're the same lenses and you want those lenses to be really similar. Mm -hmm. We talked about distance from the subject being important. So, like, if you had a a stereo realist, then you probably aren't going to take pictures of something that's 30 feet away. It's you're going to take things that are like, you know, 3 to 10 feet. That way you get a 3D effect. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I guess the other part is... I don't I don't know enough about how human eyes do this, but I have to imagine like, well, I mean, if you try and focus on something that's, you know, if you try and focus on your own nose, your eyes, like you go cross-eyed, right? So right. that makes me think that as you get farther away from things, your eyes like tilt in or out from each other sure. to see them. Mm-hmm. But a camera like this is not doing that. And so that's probably part of why you kind of have like an optimal distance. Right. For this stuff. Yeah, you definitely do. And it's like considers the the angle of view of the lens and mm-hmm. like where those angles of view cross and like where that optimal distance is. Yeah. And 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 you and if you could tilt the lenses somehow, then maybe you'd be able to do you know, maybe you'd be able to optimize for multiple distances, but you can't do that. So Yeah, and a lot of these are thirty five millimeter lenses, which is 
sure. kind of normal-ish field of view. Mm-hmm. So just kind of normal-ish field of view and then that that width and like the distance and it's just very specific applications. So I do want to talk a little bit about the video stuff, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about some super cool film cameras that you can get. Because they're like, I already said, 1947 to 1971. Stereo <laughs> that's realism. The, that's, the, that's the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. There's the one that came out in the 1980s, which is the Nimslo 3D. And this one was, quote unquote, the first pocket size 35 millimeter. <laughs> this is like this is like the uh, Fuji Natura pocket size. Oh Every maybe every it looks the same size all of this stuff is the first like the i'm gonna get to the kodak here and the kodak stereo camera was like the first something 35 millimeter whatever but they're all like oh this is the first it's like it's not they can't all be the, the first, first. Yep. like one of them's like the first 35 millimeter because everything was 120 before it's like no it's not yep stop it get out of here okay so the nims low 3d was from 1954 uh Sorry, this was a note about myself of like, it's the first pocket size. And I was like, that's really annoying because like Kodak made one in 1954 and that other one was 1947. I already talked about that. Okay. What was exciting about the Nimslow was the lenticular print. Mr. Jerry Nims himself invented that style of printing. And you can take your pictures with your Nimslow and then you would send your prints to them and they would send you back lenticular prints. So you can have like 3D hologram prints of your film photography. I mean, that's actually pretty cool because then you don't need a special viewer for it. You just have like this physical thing you can hold in your hand and you can view, you know, some sort of cool image. That's kind of neat. In 1982, it was the fastest selling 35 millimeter camera in the U.S. Wow. Daniel, it was on, it was on the cover of the Sears catalog. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Big deal. You like gone. Yeah. 30 years later, gone. Like, what yeah. are we even doing? Yeah. Can you even get something printed lenticular now? I, I just bought a 1980s camera. It wasn't this. Wasn't that? Nope. Should have been. I I don't even know where I would start to get a lenticular print. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the local camera store is going to be able to help you with that one. Yeah. No, I would, I would ask for it and they'd go, what? <laughs> what am I going to do with all these 3D images? I would like to see that conversation, but you have a good point. Next one here is this is the Kodak stereo, which is kind of what started me down this path. This one has a bubble level on it. <laughs> well, I was just telling you that the iPhone, when you take spatial video, has a level. So it is kind of important for the the horizon to be correct when you're yeah. looking at these photos, or else it's going to get jank. That makes sense. And so I think that was that was the most exciting thing about this is that it has a a bubble level. That's pretty good. You can get these reasonably cheap, Daniel. If you want to get into stereotopic photography, there are so many film cameras. <laughs> like less than a hundred bucks, you can be doing 3D. I don't know why you're not. I mean, yeah, if you're um, going to get Vision Pro down, you need to start now. You're probably right. I don't know what I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get them in the Vision Pro. <laughs> I'm going to have all these film prints. Not not going to know how to get them there, but you know. Well, Daniel, you just have to download the software called uh, Paint Shop Pro, and you'll and like and it'll be super easy. So all these other ones you've talked about. I mean, you mentioned the one that. Uh, and kind of explained how that one handled the 3D film with putting the little things on the outside of the picture area. Do most of them work that way, or how do the how do the rest of these do that? It's uh, I, it's not worth going that deep. Like some of them, it's it's some some method of like these two pictures go mm-hmm. together, so either like be a marking use, or whatever. But like you can use a standard roll of film, right? Okay. Yeah, it's a standard roll of film. Some of them would like depending upon which viewer they had. Like I think whenever I was looking at the the stereo realist, it was like the viewer. 
like could cycle through the pictures in a way that it would print it whenever you had them printed you had them mounted in like certain angles and you had to like know like this one is left and this one's upside down and blah 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 oh man that's a mess but you kind of have to like get and most of this stuff is done in slides mm-hmm. so that you can view it in a successful way so you're going to use a color positive slide film you're not going to use a color mm-hmm. negative film i really feel like the reason we've seen that where you know all these companies came out with both the capture and the display method i really feel like it's because there's not a standard for how you capture these images. And because of that, the display method, like how you print the picture or how you show the picture has to be done in a very specific way to match the exact way it was captured or else it just doesn't look right. Maybe it'll give you a headache or whatever. You I mean, you're exactly describing the currently available, purchasable, brand new today, Candeo, cool can- no, I'm looking at the wrong one. The fine picks, no, I'm looking at the wrong one. The retro 35 millimeter 3D. So tell me about that. What, what is that? <laughs> this one's 80 bucks. You can buy it now, brand new. It is a 35, 30 millimeter triple lens film camera. Like, you know that Kodak, uh, like K35 that we've talked about, the little mm-hmm. point and shoot? It's like that, but with three lenses. <laughs> and it shoots film. And you we get your film developed and then you send then you you scan the photos and import them into your Rito app and it makes wiggle pictures. <laughs> that's an interesting way to solve that's, that problem. That's the whole thing is you can send people wiggles of your photos, but you have to shoot it on film, get it developed, and scan it and then bring oh, it into man, the app. And what a mess. I'm just gonna wait for somebody to come out with an AI that takes my single picture. <laughs> And turns it into a wiggle by, you know, AI generating the other half. <laughs> you know what, Daniel? That just sounds a lot easier. That's all I'm saying. I'm surprised that doesn't already exist. <laughs> Give it That's the killer app for the Vision Pro. Yeah. You solved it. Yeah. You just need to. AI wiggles. Daniel, I, you need to start working on that right now. <laughs> Take all that AI knowledge you got. Yeah. We're going to need you to make an app for the Vision Pro. <laughs> the wiggler. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Okay, I've actually started a Kickstarter. <laughs> you can support us now. This is the Wiggler for Vision Pro. Yes, love it. <laughs> yeah, we just we just need development costs. We'll get there. Different kind of development costs than the ones we normally talk about <laughs> on this podcast. That's too good. Now, this one has a lot of promise, Daniel. Yeah, maybe okay. our best Kickstarter yet. <laughs> one of these is going to take off. I yeah. swear. Yep. This is this is the real hustle of this podcast. It's not really about, you know, like growing an audience and all that. This is really just our avenue to pitch these Kickstarters. And one of these days, we're going to convince somebody to buy in. Yep. Perfect. Yep. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to get into digital cameras. Oh, finally. Which, which I've been I, waiting I all day for that. I've already accidentally said half of these names because, Daniel, they all sound the same. Yeah, they're, they do. they're all very, very yeah. well named. Yeah. It's, it's basically like Samsung washers. Yeah. It's similar, except 3D. My washer is not 3D. <laughs> it's just a picture of a washer. That's <laughs> very disappointing. Oh, man. So 3D video. Like, we've kind of talked a lot about this. I started kind of digging into actually how you shoot 3D video. And, like, there's the way that the iPhone's going to do it. And there's a way that cameras like the FinePix Real 3D W3, which was a 2010 Fuji camera that shot photo and video with two 30 millimeter lens, no, 30 millimeter? Roughly, yeah, whatever. Two stereoscopic lenses and uh, a one over 2.3 inch sensor. CCD, pretty big deal. Yeah. 
So do you know what a camera like this, is this using two separate of those sensors or is it putting both of those images onto the single sensor? From what I can tell, it's two sensors. Mm, that, that's going to drive the price up. Because like they're farther apart. But, you know, they, I mean, it's the same thing with the iPhone, right? It's like sure. two sensors, two lenses pointed straight out. They have a thing going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's one way to do it. That's not how modern movies are shot in 3D. Okay, so what's different there? And I think that the way the modern movies do it is maybe makes a little more sense because we talked about like if you have two cameras that have an ocular distance that like where that the the view field of view crosses and like the distance and all that stuff kind of can get restrictive as far as where the 3D effect makes the most sense sure. as far as like how it's viewed. So what people will do is they'll use a um, it's this box and like and they use a, a beam a beam splitter rig thing to create the 3D effect which is a little nuts. So what they do is they take uh, two cameras and I'm going to describe this in words at you and see if I can get it. All right. Uh, because whenever people described it to words to me, I was I had no idea what they were talking about. You have two cameras with the exact same lens at a 90 degree angle. So that can be one's facing forward, one's facing to the right, one's facing forward, one's facing down. Okay. Usually down. So like facing forward, facing top down. Okay. And they're mounted like on a box of some sort. Mm-hmm. And these lenses are, are gen locked, which we talked about on the creator thing with like those FX threes. That was one of the problems with those cameras is they don't have gen lock, which is like you hit start and they both start recording at the same time. And they're exactly perfectly. Yeah. Like sync. The, the frames are lined up. Yes. So like that's super important for 3d. You have mm-hmm. to have a camera that has gen lock. A lot of modern mirrorless don't. Yeah. That's a real pro level feature. I wonder if the, if the S five Mark two has gen lock. I don't, I doubt it. I doubt it does. Yeah, probably not. Anyways, so like gen lock cameras are kind of important, super mm-hmm. important, critical. Yeah, let's go with critical. Uh, and so you have them mounted, you know, 90 degrees from each other and they're pointed to like the, looking at the same locate, kind of same direction. And then you take a, like a piece of glass that's translucent, right? Uh, and you mount it at a 45 degree angle in that box. Okay. So one camera, think of a teleprompter, is shooting through the glass. Mm, yeah, I was thinking about a teleprompter because it sounds really similar to that. It's just like that. The other one is shooting down and catching the reflection on the glass. Okay. Okay, so one's getting the reflection and one is getting the tran- transmission. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about that, you're cutting your life in half right there. Yeah. Life, yep. light, bleh. Cutting your light in half. Potentially your life because that sounds really sure. challenging to set up. Yeah. And imagine if you're shooting this thing like 60 frames per second. Yeah. I mean, like, there's there's even less light. Yeah. You, you mean you need so much light. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you, that's base, that's the basic structure of this. And then the top camera, you can move left or right along that axis uh, to change the ocular distance. Oh, So if you line them up perfectly, you have a 2D image. Mm-hmm. Then if you start moving it left or right, then you're adding ocular distance. So you can choose the level of distance you have to choose how much 3D effect you have depending upon what you're shooting, where it is, and how far away it is. Mm, like, like what what are we showing in this scene? Is this 20 feet away? Is this 200 feet away? Yeah, like how much how much 3D effect do, okay. do I want, do I need? That's and pretty that's clever. And that's basically what it is. Like that's the beam splitter box and that's the two cameras mm-hmm. and they're gen locked and like that's, that's, that's cool. how you shoot 3D with two cameras okay. for like a movie or that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I can't imagine something like that ever being consumer facing like that's always going to be the pro the pro way to do it yeah, i mean it's just too complicated expensive bulky yeah your average person's not doing that but it's like that's that's where it is right it's like you can if you do the two cameras i think that like maybe apple's going to figure something out as far as 
because they're using two different focal lengths. That's That's been like a whole no-no for 3D yeah. forever is you have to have the exact same lens, the exact same focal length. And if you want it to look really, really good, like those lenses have to be exact matches. And you, you might go through multiple copies of the same lens to find some that are like true matches if you yeah. want it to look perfect. Mm-hmm. Apple's not doing that. Yeah. They're not, I doubt that they have that level of QC on those lenses. And they're using a wide angle and, a, and an ultra wide. It's just, I don't know how they're doing that in in software but maybe like the way that they're doing it they can use like the lidar and the depth and like the two different cameras and like the width of one to kind of like maybe because one being wider they can favor one or the other and then use the other to create 3d effect versus like it actually being true stereoscopic i Mm -hmm. i don't know what they're doing i mean you can solve a lot of problems by throwing more software more processing at it Mm -hmm. i mean you know that that's already how phone cameras are as good as they are and so I think they've probably just figured out some stuff there. I mean, if you think about human eyes, a lot of people have, you know, like their eyes are- One's dominant. Yeah, right? one's dominant. And also like people's eyes have different, um, you know, basically different resolving power. Like if you have a glasses prescription, mm-hmm. it's very common for the eyes to be different to where basically like one eye can see better farther away than the other, which is, you know, not that different than saying they're two different lenses. Sure. And somehow your brain is able to figure that out, which makes you think there's got to be a way to do it. It's just a question of whether we can actually do that with the processing power that's available now. I do think that it makes it makes the iPhone stereoscopic video thing very interesting mm-hmm. because of like everything that we're talking about, how you capture capture those videos and equivalent lenses and that sort of thing. So most of the consumer stuff that you're going to buy while you wait for your Vision Pro are going to be the two lenses. Yeah. Uh, I think the FinePix one is kind of cool. I'm... Don't know if you've clicked the link and looked at it, but it's like a cute little point and shoot, uh, and it's it's a it's CCD, and like you know the CCD gang's going to be super pumped about that. <laughs> and you can just small shoot sensor, but yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of get cool. this thing for like two hundred fifty bucks. That's kind of cool looking. Yeah, I mm-hmm. like that. So like maybe this is your answer if you don't want to deal with the digital files. I have no idea what the images that come off of this are formatted as. Yeah. Like, how does that work? I don't know if it's proprietary. If it's just two big two JPEGs smushed together. <laughs> if it like. You, I think it can shoot raw, but I, pff, yeah. I have no idea, Daniel. Interesting. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. The next one I have for you here is the Candoa KuCam, which is Q-O-O Ego 3D. And this is a current current product. And it's got an F1.8 lens, 66 degree field of view, and it is a viewer and camera simultaneously. Mm, that sounds So familiar. like you hold up the thing and like you take the picture and then whenever you're you're done with your picture video, the this base thing snaps onto it. And whenever that happens, it goes into viewer mode. Interesting. It's like it magnetically attaches. And then whenever you're in viewer mode, you can like go back and view your thing. And it's got like two 1080p displays that can go to 60 frames per second. And it can shoot JPEG and DNG. And it's got two one half inch sensors. And it's just this little like viewer capture <laughs> 3D thing, which that's is pretty weird. the same stupid thing that's been made since the 1940s. Yep. But here's a, the viewer, a, here's the capture. Just a digital version. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, you know, this one's instant gratification, right? Like you can see it right after you capture it and it's the same device. So I think like sure. this is a really clever approach, but like there's not a lot of stuff on the market yeah. right now to do this. Yeah. I Whenever I saw this, I thought about that Canon RF lens. So yeah, there's, yeah there's that, a that, they RF, do have that. Yeah, for the uh, I think it only works on the R5, mm-hmm. and it's basically like you know you mount this single lens on a single Canon R5, but then the front of that lens has two lenses on it, 
and it's made for making VR content. Yep. And so it basically it, like it cuts down how much sensor space you have, obviously, because it's sure. like cramming a 3840 by 1080 image mm-hmm. effect, like roughly that, whatever that's three to one or is it three to one? No, 19. 99 by 32 image into a three by two sensor area. So like yeah. super crop down, but gets you what you need to yeah. shoot in 3d. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, that's a, that solves a lot of the other problems. Like you only need one camera. You can use your camera. Yeah, you one, have. one camera, the Canon R5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One specific <laughs> camera, but I don't know. The other thing that stood out to me about this is this feels like, like this whole market space feels like it's made for Insta 360. Sure. Like those guys make so many weird cameras. They kind of pioneered the whole 360 camera thing. I mean, they didn't pioneer it, but they, I feel like they made it. They innovated on it in a way that made it, yeah, commonplace. Yeah. Like it's, I have a a Ricoh 3D camera thing that I barely ever use. Yeah. 360 camera. Yeah. A little 360 cam. uh, And it's, those 360, like the Insta 360 ones are just kind of, better at video yeah. and I think that was the thing that really unlocked it for them mm. was like the software and the video and how you use them but they've got the, you know they've got those but then they have regular cameras they've got stuff like the go 3 you know like they're they're comfortable making cameras in these different form factors and so they're a company I'm keeping my eye on as some of this you know like the vision pro comes out and then we'll see what happens you know if other companies make similar products maybe as this VR stuff gets more common but like I would love to see Insta360 come out with something to make this sort of stuff. I I think you're on to something there. I absolutely, if the Vision Pro gets some traction in 3D capture and there becomes a market there for something that can take better 3D video than your phone, boy, they'd be, they'd be perfect for mm-hmm. it. I could, I could totally see them come out with something or maybe you can like clip to two Insta360s together and all of a sudden it does video. And That'd be cool. They're like, you could load it onto your phone and... It just works. Yeah. Like maybe you can take two of the the 360 camera versions and like put them end to end or something yeah. and get like a 360 video that's also in 3D. I don't know. Sure. That'd be cool. And that has to like auto delete itself and stuff, but that could, t- that could totally be done. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a pretty, that's pretty good. Maybe we should kickstart that instead. <laughs> I don't think we have enough uh, a bandwidth with the other yeah. thing. Yeah. I think we, we really need to focus on the Wiggler. Yeah. We need to focus on Wiggler for sure. Yeah. Yep. Man, that's, that's it, man. It's, yeah. 3D has been a thing forever is kind of where I've concluded. Ever since the dawn of photography, there has been 3D photography. Well, that's what's so surprising about it is that, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe I'd seen, you know, I knew about the Viewmaster, but I didn't really realize there were all these film cameras that did 3D. And it's so weird that that used to be such a big deal. And then it kind of went away. And now it's like, there's not really a way to consume that. And it feels like, People aren't really asking for that. And it's just strange that that's happened. I'm going to argue that it was not a big deal <laughs> and that it's never been a big deal. <laughs> and people want it to be because it, on the face of it, it seems just so perfect. Like there, I found a, an advertisement for the Kodak camera. What was it? The Kodak stereo where it's like, look at this image of this lady in a bikini what if it was 3d fellas <laughs> i was like geez kodak yeah. you need to calm down yeah that's um uh that's some 1960s marketing for uh, yeah <laughs> yep um, it's like you can only see this at your camera store <laughs> okay okay but like it just i don't know i'm 
That's why I want to talk about it, right? I wanted to secretly talk about film cameras. But then secondly, I don't know. I don't, I want to see where the Vision Pro goes. Yep. It seems like the thing that has the most potential to me to make 3D photo and video actually take, which could be cool because there are people out there that have been to stereoscopic photography for decades and they have a huge backlog and they want to be able to look at those images in a reasonable way. And if they could have an app where they scanned in their film photos, it made an .mod file and then they could view it on their Vision Pro, that would be really cool. Yeah. And so I think that like this is the next semblance of something that has the potential of what 3D TVs failed to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like curious to see if it happens, but I feel like history has kind of pushed against this and I don't know if technology has finally caught up or not. Yeah. I mean, you would like to think it would eventually. And I'm all for having the ability to see things in a more real way. I mean, if it can work well and if it's accessible and all that, then I think it'd be really cool. And I I agree with you. I think the Vision Pro is one of the best opportunities right now we have to, to maybe see that happen. But I don't know yet either whether it's actually going to work out. You know, maybe it, maybe this is the time or maybe not. So do you think you're going to use your iPhone for 3D video or do you think you're going to pick up like a like a KuCam or a FinePix <laughs> or do you think you're going to go like full digital and get like a Kodak stereo? No, nah, man, you got to got to have the iPhone. That's digital yeah. full full film. Uh-huh. I mean, the iPhone's already with you. I feel like that's just that's that's going to be the thing to beat. You know, like am I really going to buy this like I can't even convince myself to carry around an XT30 to take photos. Am I really going to buy this 3D thing and take that with me places? I'm, you know, no. But you might. Just like already the the process of shooting film, developing it and scanning it just so I can bring it into Lightroom and edit it a little more and then see those pictures. Like <laughs> it's so much. And now add the extra and how I have to pair the photos together, scan them, and then like make the 3D ver- Oh my gosh, Daniel. It basically makes it twice as expensive to shoot film too. Mm-hmm. Twice as expensive, twice as hard. All of the all the difficulty with like getting everything lined up and oh boy. I can't even imagine shooting stereo film. <laughs> yeah. That might that might be a bridge too far, even for you. I'd have to get like a I'd have to get like a, a one of those viewer things where like like you know like when you're a kid or you click through them or whatever those are the kind of things where you slide the color positive film in it. It would be the only way to look at those pictures. Maybe that's the appeal, Daniel. <laughs> is you can have all of these photos where they're so exclusive, only you can see them with your stupid like viewer for your slide film things. And that's somehow where we've ended up <laughs> after this hour of discussion. Oh, Daniel, I just think about it. Think about it. I open up a I open up a business where like people like you know like art houses and that sort of thing, so people can come and see these photos because there isn't another way to see them because I have this bespoke device for viewing three D film photos that no one else has. And on that note. <laughs> That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Camera Gear Pod. We'll be back with more next week.